Welcome into the 48 Minutes Podcast by Believe, where you stay up to date in 48 on all things NBA. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media and World B, Michael Freer. This is episode number 35, the Kevin Durant episode. And fellas, we've got a lot to discuss on tonight's show, and I'm sure KD and the Suns might be one of our topics of conversation. So let's get right into our opening tip. And Bruce, I'll start with you. Yeah, we might talk about KD. (laughs) Anyway, guys, I was in Toronto on Wednesday night for ESPN radio at the Bulls Raptors play in game. We did pregame interviews with both head coaches, Nick Nurse of the Raptors and Billy Donovan of the Bulls. Both were very honest about their teams with our announcers, Mark Kestisher and PJ Carlesimo. I was really impressed at how they were so candid and seemingly relaxed just before such a big game. During the game, our announced position was right next to the Bulls bench, and I was sitting three feet away from Coach Donovan as he, like, stomped all over the sidelines. Not really stomping, but patrolled the sidelines uh, for the entire game. Now, for most of the game, the Raptors were in control. You guys saw it. The Bulls' defensive effort left a lot to be desired. Their lead, uh, the Raptors lead ballooned to as many as 19 points just three minutes into the third quarter, and it really seemed like the Bulls just didn't have it. But throughout it all, Donovan was calm and under control, never screaming, never yelling at his team or the officials. If he disagreed with a call, he spoke to the refs respectfully and never lost his cool. At one point while the team was trailing, he called reserve guard Kobe White over to the sideline during a dead ball and said something to him that I couldn't hear but made both of them smile and start laughing. And I mean, they were still losing at this point. There were four Raptors fans also sitting right in front of me and right next to him. And one of these dudes, man, was wearing the most God-awful, hideous Raptors hoodie. It was like, it was like a crime of fashion. It was so bad, but it caught Donovan's eye. And so he started talking to these guys right during the game. He's like, you know, pointing to the shirt and all this kind of stuff. And joking with these fans during the game and appearing to just have the time of his life, just having a great time. But as the third quarter progressed, the team started catching fire behind Zach Levine's offense and Alex Caruso's defense. And in the final quarter, Levine kept firing away. Caruso kept grinding in the way and the Bulls just kept chipping away, finally taking the lead with just over five minutes left. And while the teams did go at each other in the final minutes, the Raptors never regained the lead and the Bulls hung on for a thrilling win. But throughout the intense moments down the stretch, Coach Donovan maintained his composure, and so did his team. It was a really good example of poise under pressure and how to lead a team successfully through a challenging situation in hostile territory. Well done, Coach Donovan. Yeah, that was quite a comeback in Toronto uh, the other night by the Chicago Bulls. Much credit to Billy Donovan keeping his cool and understanding uh, that his team had what it took to overcome that deficit. World B, what's your opening tip? Well, thank you, Ross. Uh, Declared healed from his hamstring problem, Zion Williamson went out before the Pelicans' win-or-go-home game uh, against the Thunder on Wednesday and proceeded to throw down some dunks hours before the game with the cameras from ESPN right there to watch the whole thing. Afterwards, he declared himself out for the biggest game of the season, saying essentially that he was physically ready to play, but not mentally ready. Zion, who, despite being healed from his hamstring issue, didn't look in great physical shape on TV during these little warm-up drills that he was doing. And if you believe the reports, 
He'd been cleared. He hadn't even been cleared to practice in one-on-one drills, let alone five-on-five drills. And yet here he was in front of a national TV camera making sure, while there was nobody else around in the stands or anything, making sure that people could know that he was on the court working. Now, whether or not he could or should have played on Wednesday is really not the issue because it sounds as if there was really never a chance he was going to play. He hadn't been in, he wasn't in shape. He hadn't practiced much. So it was understandable if he wasn't going to play. But the question is, why make yourself seen now on national TV? It just left him open to unnecessary criticism, fair or unfair, about whether or not he should have played. And he's been receiving some ever since. So now the Pelicans who saw their season come to an end, don't forget, they were just a game out of first place in the West when he, when Williamson went down in early January. And now it, it's come to an end, and this will be an interesting offseason for the Pelicans and their front office. And perhaps the biggest question of them all is, will Zion Williamson ever be physically and mentally ready, able to handle the load of the, being the face of the franchise? I couldn't possibly be more disappointed in a player than I am disappointed in that guy. Again, you don't want to dog somebody who's got injuries, but as you just said, you gotta you gotta read the room, as they say, right? I mean, he shouldn't if he isn't ready to play, he shouldn't be out there. I remember one of Pat Riley's former Miami Heat players, I forget who it was, told me a story one time about oh no, it was no, it was um a, a former Nick player when Charles, you know, missed five layups in a row. Smith was injured one year. He so he fouled, kept, by the way. what's that? He got <laughs> fouled. Yeah, he didn't get fouled. <laughs> so Charles came into the locker room before a game in civilian clothes. And it was an important game. So Pat Riley says to him, Charles, if I needed you to give me one minute tonight, would you be able to give me one minute? And Charles said, yeah, coach. Then he said, then why the F are you in street clothes? Put your uniform on. And if you're Zion Williamson and you're not going to play, put your suit on and background only. Yeah, I I totally agree with you there, Bruce. I think, if anything, it would have been kind of mind games for Zion to actually suit up and say that he was playing. I don't think that hurts in a do-or-die game against a young team like the Oklahoma City Thunder. Granted, I think this Thunder team has been through a lot of uh, close games, as Josh Giddy and SGA had stated in their post-game interview. So I'm not sure if it would have flustered them, but could have been a nice curveball, just a little poker play there to be like, yeah, Zion's available. We're, we're not sure if he's going to play, but he is active tonight. That could have been a nice little uh, chess, chess move by uh, the Pelicans there. But I'm in total agreement with you, World B. I, I, I can't believe this guy is out there in the spotlight before the biggest game of the season with the season on the line, throwing down dunks, showing up, showing off what he's capable of doing and, and not being able to participate. I think it just leaves a foul mouth in my taste. I can't imagine being a, a Pelicans fan either. And uh, I, I do got to say, watching that game last night and seeing the energy in that crowd, I've got a lot of respect for Pelicans fans. I think they've done a tremendous job rallying around the guys that they do have, because I know there are a lot of franchises out there that don't have the crowd that would show up without a Zion Williamson out on the floor. And these guys have really embraced the team that's able to be active out there and active and, and, and really showed that support that that team needed last night, despite them falling short against the thunder. So 
Can great, I ask great you guys? Yeah, go no, for I'm it. sorry. Can I ask you guys both a question about Zion Williamson? I'm in, interested in each of your responses. Yes or no? Do you think that somebody is going to offer him a max contract despite the fact that he's barely played? Well, he begins, I believe he begins next season, a big time contract. I think he signed last oh, season. Oh, so he got extension. it already? Yeah, uh, yeah. Got during it. the offseason last last uh, July or something. I think he yeah. next year begins where he's going to get about 30, 35 mil or something like that. He's not going yeah. to be the highest paid player next season because that belongs to CJ McCollum. But he's going to be one of three. I think Brandon's going to get 30. I think uh, uh, Zion's going to get 30. So now they have a question. They have a big decision on their hands. What what to do? Are we going to give $30 million to this guy and only see him for some of the games? Either because he's not willing to participate or he's not – or he just can't. Whatever this situation is, it could very well be that he's legitimately injured all the time because of his weight or because of whatever. And that's fair. There's no question that it's fair. But if you're the Pelicans front office, what am I going to do? I'm going to give this guy $120 million for the next four years, and I'm only going to see have him see the court half the time? So they're going to have a decision to make. They can they could probably, at this stage, find somebody to take a chance on him and his contract because he's so young, he is so talented. But you know, hey, there's Mark Cuban though he's available, you know, if uh, <laughs> if need be. It's yeah, a sucker my, born every minute. <laughs> my my answer to that, Bruce, real quickly here is uh yes, because I'm a true believer that this this league and this business is crazy, and all it takes is one. I mean, you got 29 other teams. Look what happened with the Phoenix Suns. They thought no one was going to give DeAndre Ayton a max contract offer that they would have to match. And he went ahead and got one from the Indiana Pacers. Uh, I think someone would would take a chance on Zion just from the marketing standpoint, since he is such a marketable player, very popular on Instagram and TikTok with his highlight reels. And that brings a lot of money in. So I think someone definitely would. But I personally would not. I've, I've actually always kind of been a, a Zion hater, I guess people would call me, because I've I've never been a believer in just how big he is in that explosion. Uh, I've always had question marks about the durability uh, surrounding both those knees, just able to withstand that kind of power. I mean, what he does is super impressive, very talented, but I'm not, I'm not signing that guy to long-term money at, at all costs. And by the way, keep in mind, I mean, we're, we are talking about a guy who's, you know, whatever, whatever age he is, I can't remember 22, 23, whatever he is. And he's not a he's not a off the court issue. He's not you don't have off the court issues when it comes to him, like you have some other guys. And you know we can name off uh, a lot of Kyrie's, I suppose, out there. But ja, you know, he's ja, not. Ja, ja, ja. There's not Sorry. that right. Well, there's not that issue at least that we know about yet with him. Last season, it wasn't that issue with Ja either. So who knows? But so you, I mean, that's a positive in his favor as far as and you know. Uh, being able to be tradable and Ross is right. The marketability is definitely there, but it's all comes down to physically and mentally. Is he really in that? Is that something you're going to give 30 million to? I'm, I wonder right now is the Pelicans are the Pelicans front office happy about what's coming their way over the next four years with Zion? Or are they just crossing their fingers? Like, geez, what's going to happen? I think, are they happy or say about what the future holds? Option B. For him. Option yeah, B. Yeah, they very well could be. <laughs> yeah. So, great opening tip there. Honestly, that was uh, 
really good discussion there, almost like a, a, a mini quarter there. But here <laughs> I go for my opening tip here. And I wanted to put a quick spotlight on slow-mo Kyle Anderson's play uh, and his performance on Tuesday night in Los Angeles against the Lakers. I had mentioned how curious I'd be with how he'd respond after the bench altercation with Rudy Gobert in Minnesota's previous game. And despite the fact that the Timberwolves fell short on uh, the final score in this one, Kyle Anderson still would have been my player of the game in this one for his impact on the defensive end of the floor. He was unbelievably effective playing big and disrupting Anthony Davis down low, ending the game with four steals and four blocks. And while Mike Conley and Torian Prince both stepped up offensively to help give this shorthanded Timberwolves team a boost, Slomo also had a game-high 13 assists. Just an overall incredible game from Kyle Anderson all around. And even with Gobert back into the swing of things for tonight's game against Oklahoma City Thunder, I think the Wolves are really going to need another big-time performance from Slomo to get past this hungry and young Thunder squad. And with you that, really said Gobert, all- you really said Gobert was going to be back in the swing of things? That was a good one, Rob. Yeah, like that, <laughs> one intended. <laughs> so, so with that, let's get right into our first quarter and start talking about some of these interesting matchups we have ahead of us this weekend. And let's preview Friday night's winner-go-home play-in matchups. And we're going to start out east with the Chicago Bulls visiting the Miami Heat. Bruce? Zach Levine scored 39 points, 30 in the second half on Wednesday to lead the 10th seeded Bulls over the Raptors. And while every game, you know, creates a new dynamic, the momentum that the Bulls gained on Wednesday, I think is going to give them a little bit of an edge heading into Miami on Friday. I mean, the Heat had a very uneven and lackluster performance against the Hawks in their Tuesday loss at home in that seven versus eight. And the Bulls became the first number 10 seed to win a play-in game, which the second one happened soon after, but that's coming up. Uh, But they're going on the road for second straight game, and that's going to provide another big challenge, right? But after overcoming a huge deficit in Toronto, it's unlikely they're going to be rattled by a Heat team that looked nothing like the classic gritty Miami teams on Tuesday. I see the Bulls riding that wave and being rewarded with a date in Milwaukee with Ross's top-seeded Bucks. (laughs) What about you, World B? What are you thinking in the Bulls-Heat matchup? Well, it was a really disappointing effort for Miami's offense. I mean, they just, you know, against a, a defense in Atlanta that was just frankly not very, hadn't been very good under uh, under Quinn Snyder. We talked about on Tuesday, their their offense has been great, but their defense has been, has suffered uh, throughout. It's been terrible. They were unbelievably horrible around the rim. I mean, they they were. I looked up. They were zero for three on putback sh- layup shots. They were one for five on cutting layup shots, and they were three of nine on driving layup shots. They couldn't. They were six. They were six of fifteen in the restricted area overall. That's you can't. That's p- impossible. That's the easiest shot you got. I mean, you can't Garbage. do any better. So it was really, uh, it was a really disappointing effort in it against an opponent that you really should have uh, dominated. Quite frankly, I mean, they had. You know, six second chance points. They they grabbed all these offensive rebounds and came. I think they, oh, that's not true. I think they had six offensive rebounds and came away with six off second chance points. I mean, that's how are you supposed to get down when you can't shoot? They were a terrible uh, shooting team from the field in that in that game. They only had I think they only shot about 32 percent from three point range. 
which is where they were for most of the season until about March. So they reverted back to their early season woes. They were number one in three-point shooting last year, and then they were down to bottom this year. But the way they finished, you thought, well, they, they got in gear. They got the big their big three going. They have some momentum. And then they've just flopped like it's nobody's business. I'm with Bruce until I, I see different. And if, I don't see how you can not turn it on the way they couldn't do against Atlanta and expect to go up against the Bulls, who have a top five defense, number one after the All-Star break this year, and expect to suddenly find your offense. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. I think I've changed my tune on the Miami Heat, who I had beating the Atlanta Hawks. Um, I see Chicago taking this momentum and running with it in Miami uh, Friday night. I think what was interesting about the postgame in Miami was Bam Adebayo coming out in his postgame presser saying that he needs to be more involved offensively. I'm really curious to see what that looks like. That could be big because I do think that Nikola Vucevic would have a challenge defending Bam Adebayo. If he gets in foul trouble, the Bulls might be in trouble down low a little bit because I'm not one that's going to be trusting 2022 Andre Drummond in a playoff series. Um, But the other big factor here too, Kyle Lowry, he had a huge game, 33 points. Is he going to be able to repeat that? It seems like they definitely need his offense, especially with, as you said, uh, Will B. They're not shooting the ball too well. He had a really good night. Can he bring that on two consecutive nights? We really haven't seen that all season long from him. Obviously, he's got that playoff experience, and he's a veteran uh, that that certainly is someone that is is good in a moment. But, like, I, I don't trust this Miami team right now. I think I'm going to ride with the Bulls. I don't see Kyle Lowry having another game like that maybe ever. I mean, look <laughs> at who Chicago can throw at him. Patrick Beverly, Alex Caruso, Kobe White. I mean, these guys will guard you. Even Scotty Barnes – or not Scotty Barnes. Um, Patrick Williams, I mean, he jumps yep. around on the perimeter and guards people. Um, that, that, to me, when I saw that performance, I said, this is the last gas of a great player – who's probably going to go to the Hall of Fame, but, I mean, that's his last, that was his last hurrah. I can't imagine him having another game like that. And, by the way, Chicago's defense has done the job against the, Bull, against the Heat in three meetings. I don't think the Miami has scored more than 110 points per 100 possessions in any of the three meetings. So, you know, that's, they, they've already done the job during the season against them. They, they know how to beat them during the regular season. And, obviously – Going on the road doesn't seem to bother Chicago as they saw in Detroit or uh, Toronto, excuse me. So there's a there's a lot to like about where the Bulls are at this stage. Absolutely, and uh, our second game on Friday night is going to be another winner go home situation in the plan as the Oklahoma City Thunder visit the Minnesota Timberwolves. Will be I'll start with you on this matchup. Well, the Thunder, to me, were the most impressive team so far in this uh, playing tournament. Uh, to go where they uh, had to go and, and you know, they had a nice lead and they got, let it get away and they pulled it out anyway. Um, yeah, I thought, you know, they got SGA performance was what you thought they needed, 32 points or whatever, and it's 25 in the second half. Scott uh, Josh Giddy had a, a big night with 30. And stuff, and uh, you know, they have. It's hard to imagine watching them play 
the, the last two years, the previous two seasons, they were the worst offense in the league. And they basically have the same players, just older, the other year older. They're still young, one of the youngest, if not the youngest team around. But, you know, they're just much improved. And SGA was just dominating the second half, 25 in the second half. He had that great shot at the end. And he was a big guy on drives. He led the league in drives this year. And he only had 11 drives against the Pelicans on Wednesday. But he shot seven and nine on those drives. So that was really, you know, it's really impressive. He was still able to get right around his regular season scoring average on drives, just with so fewer shots. So it's, there's a lot to, you know, again, just like there's a lot to like with Chicago going on the road and winning. There's a lot to like about Oklahoma City, even though winning twice on the road is going to be tough. And I, I came away more impressed with Minnesota than I expected to be, quite frankly. Right up until the fourth quarter. <laughs> Bruce? Well, you know, like most NBA fans with a clue, I've been super impressed with the Thunder this season. I mean, shortly after the Bulls became the first 10 seed to win a play-in game, the Thunder became the second, right? Um, they are poised to become a power player in the Western Conference. They've got a young, talented team. They've got enough draft assets to trade for virtually any player they would like to add to the mix in OKC. On Wednesday, as you started, as you you alluded to, uh, they got a combined uh, will be they got a combined ninety points from SGA, Giddy, and Lou Dort. Who, by the way, Lou Dort is a for real player. A lot of people used to think he was a joke that he couldn't shoot. Well, he. Put up some numbers last he night. Or, yes, he did. Yeah. And they and they blitzed him in the third quarter, 39-24. I mean, they blew open the game in the third quarter. That was it. Um, but I think that the game against Minnesota on Friday night is actually going to be a very close game. I do like Minnesota, uh, do like Minnesota to prevail with the return of Rudy Gobert. Um, and their reward is going to be a matchup with two-time MVP Nikola Jokic. And the Nuggets. But, yes, I think Minnesota has enough to get by. But OKC is definitely one of the teams of the future, not only just in the West, but period. And, and we've talked about it, too, when it comes to Oklahoma City. Obviously, uh, a very talented young team. The one thing they are lacking is that big man. And that's the one thing that we all know Minnesota has, especially with Gobert returning. So I'm very curious to see how Gobert does in a return game see if he tries to make things right with the fan base, as I'm sure they're disappointed in his actions in that last game of the regular season, which caused him to miss the first play-in game. And um, I got to ask you and put you on the spot here, Will Be. Do you care to comment on Anthony Edwards? I mean, he was surely a disappointment. We can all agree on that. Are we going to see a different Ant-Man back at home? I would like to think so. Uh, he's he's my guy, so I'll I'll go on the the assumption that uh, he's not going to be three for seventeen back to back games, and certainly with one of them being at home. Uh, a couple of things here, by the way, you mentioned the the lack of height for Oklahoma City. You know who the leader on the Thunder is in blocks this season? SGA. Wow, with by a wide margin, by the way, like sixty five or something. Yeah, by, by a wide margin. Uh, and the other thing is, as much as I talked about Oklahoma City, there there was a lot to like about what Minnesota came up with right up until the fourth quarter. They only scored 16 points in 17 minutes of the fourth quarter and overtime combined. 
That's that's almost impossible to do in any era, let alone this era where his scoring is so easy these days. So uh, there was a lot to like about they absolutely gave the game away against the Lakers. 24 turns. They gave 30 points off turnovers to the Lakers. I mean, they're not, they're not winning Friday if they pull a stunt like that again. I'll tell you, I don't care if Anthony Edwards goes for 40 or whatever the next day. If you give up 30 points on turnovers and bat to bat, you're, not, you're going home. Um, so if they can keep that down. So there's a lot to like because you don't expect them to have 24 turnovers again. You don't expect Anthony Edwards to go three for 17 again because if you do, there's going to be a lot of questions. We were talking about how Zion's a big question in the offseason. There's going to be a lot of talk about Anthony Edwards if he pulls another uh, stunt like you know the other night. They should trade him to the Knicks. <laughs> he's not. He's not over the hill yet. He's not. His game isn't gotten downhill yet. Uh, that's like, I'm still waiting for LeBron's game to go downhill to, for the Knicks to get him. And again, it just isn't happening. I keep waiting. I keep waiting. He's just not downhill yet. When he's down at the bottom, when he's over, he's only goes on one leg, dragging. That's when we scoop in and get him. Excellent so, snark out of you, World B. <laughs> so before we move on here, I just want to make sure things are clear. I'm going to take Minnesota. Who do you guys have before we move on to the second quarter? Minnesota. I'm going to take the Thunder. All right. Got but I agree. Here. I like game. it. All right. And uh, with that, let's get to our second quarter here. Moving on to our first two matchups set for Saturday. We're going to start with Atlanta. Visiting the Boston Celtics and Bruce, I feel like it's only right that you go first on this one. Thanks. I should get rid of being, my Bulls hat and find one of the Celtics hats. Being the Hawks fan that you are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, this should be a quick series. I mean, look, Boston played them three times, two in Atlanta. Uh, they won all three by a combined 40 points. Uh, both teams can score a bunch of points. You know, Atlanta averaged more points per game than Boston. So, I mean, they can put up numbers, you know, at the offensive end, but the difference is on defense. And Atlanta doesn't really have much. Uh, They're tied for 25th in points allowed, while the Celtics are fifth. Boston makes six more three-pointers a game, and that's, you know, 18 points right there. Um, And that's going to be another big factor. Uh, Expect Boston to absolutely abuse Trey Young in the screen and roll nonstop Mm -hmm. with, with, with Derek White, Marcus Smart, and Malcolm Brogman taking turns, treating him like a pinata. The only edge I see for Atlanta is in coaching experience, okay? With veteran Quinn Snyder and rookie Joe Mazzula, Quinn has coached a lot of playoff games. But better players and more playoff experience, uh, better players will off, you know, offset the lack of playoff experience by Joe. I could see a sweep by Boston, but I'll give Atlanta one game, Boston and five. Will be. Uh, I think the Celtics, you know, it, it'd be silly to think the Celtics aren't going to take this series in relatively quick fashion. But I will say a couple of keys that could work out if Atlanta wants to be in this series. Number one, can they run the pick and roll on offense themselves? Because they do it more than anybody else. And Boston is not exactly great defending the pick and roll. They're about the bottom 10 in efficiency when it comes to that. And Atlanta has the best pick and roll guy you know, ball handler guy in the league and Trey Young who runs it more than any other uh, player. So there is that opportunity. And can Atlanta get on the, on the offensive glass? They did it the other night. They had, let's see, second chance points the other night. Yeah, 26 second chance points against the Heat. 
Can they do that against the Celtics, who were the best defensive rebounding team in the league in, in defensive rebound percentage? They were number one. But can can Atlanta do that? Because they averaged 19 second-chance points in the series versus Boston during the season series. So if they can do that to go along with their offense, you know, maybe they can stick around. I do think it's just going to be difficult. I don't see them getting as many offensive rebounds overall when you have uh, Robert Williams on there. And I think Robert Williams and Al Horford being in the court together is going to be huge because you hadn't seen that very often during the regular season because of injuries and stuff. But when they were on the court this season together, they outscored opponents by like 16 points per 100 possessions. That's a ridiculous uh, efficiency gap. And so if they can pull that off, I don't think Atlanta has uh, that capability. And you really got to get Clint Capella to get 20-plus rebounds for four or five games here. I don't. He's great. He's he's a solid rebounder, and that was a great flash from the old days to see him. Uh, and Atlanta did get a bunch from their bench because their starting five has been one of the best in the league. People don't realize it. Their starting five has been one of the best in the league in terms of outscoring their opponents, and their bench has been – Okay, whatever. Their bench had a really good night against uh, against Miami. Kyle Lowry dominated off the bench on Miami's side, but they had four double digit scorers off the bench for Atlanta. So there, there's some things that they can do. I just don't know if they can. Yeah, I, I just don't see it happening here. Just because, I mean, I don't think you can afford to cr- cr- crash the glass against the Boston Celtics because, as you mentioned, they're number one in defensive rebounding in the league and. If you don't get that offensive rebound, the Celtics Celtics are just going to absolutely torch you on the open court. I mean, those guys get out and go. They're getting open threes. They're knocking them down. They're one of the best in getting the ball and going. So I think it's a huge risk and huge ask to say, hey, we're going to crash the offensive glass because I think that's going to turn into blowout city in Boston's favor. That's going to be blowout city anyway, isn't it? If you listen to to us, it's going to be – Blowout city. Yeah. So if I have an advantage potential, I might as well just say screw it and just go for it and see if, you know, if it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out. But if your only hope is because you, you're going to have plenty of opportunities as long as Trey Young is shooting the ball to get offensive <laughs> rebounds. So yeah. you send him back. And now you're right, though. You send him back. You crash the glass. You don't get the rebound. Now you got Trey Young, who is not exactly a noted defender, trying to defend a three on one fast break. So yeah, that's uh, that is a recipe for disaster. But maybe their only hope. Box out Capella, and the rest will take care of itself. Put a body on that guy, and the rest will take care of itself. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to just speak for all of us here. We all got the Celtics, and uh, we'll move on to that uh, other Eastern Conference matchup that's taking place on Saturday, and that is the Brooklyn Nets visiting the Philadelphia 76ers. World B, start us off. Uh, this is another series that probably will be quick, but it has the potential to go a little bit further than we expect because of, because of this. Can Mikhail Bridges guard James Harden for, for a series? Because they met the one time they met, I think, uh, Bridges guarded him for like 20, 26 possessions. And Harden won nothing to do with Bridges. Huh. He took one shot. He had nobody two does. assists or whatever. Right, nobody really does. But if that's what's a, that's going to be the assignment, I would assume, to have uh, Bridges on James Harden and you know, take your chances that way. But 
They really don't have anybody to match up with MD. Not too many people do. Uh, Claxton's a good defender, but MD is just too big and strong, and uh, it doesn't figure to be in the Nets' favor. They didn't shoot the ball well against Philly. The last two games after the deadline uh, for Brooklyn against Philadelphia, I think they only scored 104 points per 100 possessions, so it just wasn't – they didn't have the offense when they had these guys. The one thing they do have a chance at is because their regular starting five that they have, Bridges, Cam Johnson, Dinwiddie, uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, and Claxton, those guys, when they were on the court uh, this year for the Nets, were one of the best uh, defensive five-player lineups in the league. I think they were third in uh, points allowed per 100 possessions, I think 108 or something like that. So they have a shot at doing something like that. I just don't think they have enough. And they, the other thing that they may be able to do, they can shoot the three. They shot the three much better in the set after the deadline. And it's going to be what they're going to have to do with Joe Harris and uh, Seth and Patty Mills and those guys to try and shoot the three and try and make it that kind of game. If you're hitting your threes, maybe you have a shot, but it's really hard to fathom uh, the Sixers losing more in the game. Maybe they could, but I don't see it. I mean, Embiid's going to go at Claxton, and Claxton's going to aggressively guard him, and he's going to have two personals in the first five minutes of the first quarter. And when that guy goes to the bench, I mean, forget about it. I mean, you know, it's going to be really tough for the rest of them to cover. It's not like anyone else is particularly tall on their team. He's kind of it. Yep. And for me, as long as Philadelphia matches Brooklyn's effort and energy level, they'll be fine. Key here is to not let Brooklyn find their stride or allow the young Nets team to find their groove for a stretch that could be enough to extend the series by bringing some forward momentum into Brooklyn home games. I think just these first two games setting the tone for Philadelphia, showing them that they're outmatched is going to be key because if you give them any glimmer of hope or even just keep the door cracked open just a bit, I think uh, Brooklyn's going to go ahead and win one back in back at home at the Barclays Center. So um, should be very interesting to see what happens. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing just the competitiveness of that young Nets team. And I'm certainly kind of pulling for them, not only just as a Bucks fan, but from the perspective of this team making the playoffs, I think it'd be really cool if they won a game or two. But I think it's going to be a tall task against this 76ers team led by Joel Embiid. And, they just uh, don't have the offense. Yeah. No, I don't think And uh, with that, we've reached the halftime buzzer. So we'll take a quick break and come back with you for the second half. And we're back with the start of our third quarter. And I got to say, what we're about to talk about next are the two most intriguing matchups on Saturday. And we're going to begin with the New York Knicks visiting the Cleveland Cavaliers. World B, take it over. Well, I said on the other the other day, the previous episode, this seven game series. I think the Knicks in three, but uh, uh, they're going to dominate that much. No, it'll be it's going. I think it'll go the distance. Uh, this is all predicated on the fact that uh, Julius Randle is is healthy and uh, you know as close to hundred percent as he can be. Uh, if that's the case, then they uh, absolutely will have a shot. It will not be easy. Cleveland is. I mentioned it before. They're one of three teams, top 10 in offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency. It's the Celtics, the 76ers, then the Cavs, who are the number one defense in the league. 
Um, it's Jalen Brunson's time to shine. It's Julius Randle's time to shine. It's Donovan Mitchell's time to shine. So uh, there's a lot of storylines. And in New York, all the storylines get magnified tenfold. So uh, it'll be a really tough series. I think Julius Randle's health is going to be the key for the Knicks. If I don't see they, they have a shot without him. Uh, I think their depth after the trade deadline is huge for them in this series or in the playoffs, I should say, just because I think they have a they developed a really solid rotation of players outside of starters that can be productive and can I think can push most teams on on a lot of nights. It's going to be a tough series. I I'll take the Knicks, Bruce. Um, as World B points out, I mean you know. I believe this series is going to come down to two issues for the Knicks. Number one, is Julius Randle healthy enough to be the Julius Randle we know and love? Uh, Number two, will point guard Jalen Brunson be able to break down a Cavaliers defense that allowed the fewest points per game and features two gigantic defenders in the paint with Jared Allen and Evan Mobley? For Cleveland, will Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland continue their explosive scoring against a Knicks team that's gritty and aggressive? This does have the potential to be the most entertaining of all the first-round series. And listen, there's nothing like playoff basketball at Madison Square Garden. It's just like a magical sort of scene. And I've said this before. I expect seven games, and either team could win. If you really pin me down and say, okay, who? I'll say Cleveland, but by the closest of margins, and it would not shock me to see the Knicks win this. Of course, I said that I thought that the Cavaliers would go ahead and win this in six. I also predicted that big time shot from Donovan Mitchell in game six at Madison Square Garden. But I think one of the big keys here for the Knicks chances is actually Isaiah Hartenstein. I know that's probably a big ask, but that's kind of just how I'm looking at this series. I think he's going to have to really step up. I'm looking at Julius Randle being 60 percent at best, and I would be approaching this as almost like he's unavailable because I'm not putting too much in the cards for him to be able to perform. I wouldn't even be shocked that by like game two, you know, he leaves the game mid game with tightness or, or, you know, just like an aggregated injury. I just don't, I, I, for whatever reason, my gut's saying don't buy into Julius healthy being completely healthy. I hope he proves me wrong for the sake of just the entertainment piece, because if healthy Julius Randall's available, this is going to be a dog fight and go seven. Um, but I'm going to stick with six on this one. And uh, with that, we'll get to the second matchup uh, on Saturday night that I find most intriguing, and that is going to be the Golden State Warriors at the Sacramento Kings. And I want to start this one off by just saying there's going to be no building in the world that will be louder than Golden One Center at the start of that game. Bruce? The the cowbells are coming back out, Ross. Is that (laughs) what you're saying? Oh, they sure are, in full force. (laughs) It's a tremendous matchup. I mean, really. Two prolific scoring teams. Sack number one, Golden State number two, points per game. And as we pointed out ad nauseum on this show, uh, Kings coach Mike Brown was an assistant uh, for six seasons with Steve Kerr. So, again, who knows the dubs better than the guy who was on their bench for six years, and now he's going to be scheming against them. Uh, The Warriors are better defensively and have a big edge in playoff experience although the kings have a number of have a number of guys who have playoff experience but just not as a unit together um 
Kings have the home court. Dubs, as we have also said ad nauseum, one of the worst road teams in the league at and at 11 and 30. Uh, but one thing working in their favor, and I mentioned this the other night, the Kings were actually better on the road than they were at home. They have a better road record than home record. I don't know that I've ever heard of a playoff team that has a better road record than home record because generally when you're a playoff team, you know, you take care of your business at home. And if you're a little bit above 500, that's, you know, that's good too uh, on the road, that is. Um, so I expect Golden State to grab one win in Sacramento at some point. I don't know which game because they always win a road game. We've talked about that. And if the Dubs split the first two, I think they'll win the series. If it's 1-1 after two going back to Golden State, I think Golden State will win. And if it's a seven-game series, if it's 2-0 after two-nothing Kings after game two, I expect seven. And in a seven-game series, even though game seven will be in cowbell heaven, I'm going yeah. with the team that's won it all four times in the last eight seasons. Will be? Uh, well, first things first, the Knicks had a better road record than uh, home record this year by a game. So – it's Did they not really? The, yeah, by one game. They were like that most of the year. So no um, one cares about the Knicks. Well, not anymore. <laughs> we've we've moved on. We've moved on from the Knicks. Uh on the paper, this seems like the, the most exciting series of the uh of the first round. Uh I would expect, you know, I would my everybody's attention should be at the beyond the arc part of the court because you have some of the most prolific three point shooters. In this series, I think there's uh, five guys who made at least 200 threes in this series, and I think three of them are on the Warriors. And uh, you got Keegan Murray and uh, uh, Kevin Huter on uh, on Sacramento. So there's going to be a lot of threes in this series. Uh, we talked about it to death. It's uh, can the Warriors win a game on the road? They have that streak in the playoffs that Bruce mentioned in previous series, and you know it's legendary now that they've won at least one road game in every series during this uh, run under Steve Kerr, which is obviously impressive, but they just don't have that. They don't have that same uh, domination or to say the least on the road this season. They've been terrible. Uh, So they're going to really have to step up their defense on the road uh, because they're going to play more there. Sacramento was three and one or the Warriors are three and one during the regular season, but only one was played after November. So you really don't take a whole lot of stock into that matchup. And the other one was in uh, what, right at the end of the season, I think they played. So there's really not a whole lot there. It's the matchup is uh, that I'm looking forward to is Curry versus Fox. That should be, you know, that should be worth the price of admission right there. Yep. And let's see what Andrew Wiggins has. Andrew Wiggins is a, you know, when he comes back, he's a, potential difference maker on this on this team and he could throw all the road stuff that I've been you know blathering about for weeks out the window if he comes back and gives them uh the kind of production he's been giving them uh, since he really since he's been there yeah and with Sacramento obviously I started this off by saying that no building will be louder I think for Sacramento, they got to cherish the moment being the top seed here. Who would have thought they would be the top seed over the Warriors in this kind of matchup? So setting the tone in the first half, keeping the crowd involved, and making sure that doubt doesn't set in amongst the crowd because I think that would honestly kind of linger onto the court with the players themselves. And then 
maybe I'm stating the obvious here, but I think that as long as they keep it close in that fourth quarter, I mean, they're giving Darian Fox a chance to live up to his nickname, right? Mr. Fourth Quarter. If a game is close down the stretch, I like the Kings' chances. Um, but they got to set the tone early, come out with energy. Sabonis really has to be the one to set the president down low with the physicality. And um, I think if they get off to a hot start, good things are going to come. I feel like the Kings have a lot of showmen on their team. I mean, De'Aaron Fox likes to put on a show. We all know Malik Monk's like Malik Monk loves a show. You can't let the Sacramento Kings steal that, or the or the Golden State Warriors steal that show from you. And we know Curry can do that with his uh, explosive three point shooting, Clay's three point shooting, maybe even a Jonathan Kaminga dunk. You can't let them suck the air out of the building. So these first two games, as you said, Bruce, you know, depending on what the series goes back to, Golden State looking like is going to be huge for the ultimate road to who who's going to come out of this series. The, the Kings got to take advantage of these first two games. They can't let one of those games slip away, especially when they, they got to at least get a, get the first one. I think getting the first one rather than the second one would be big. Um, and, and it might go back one, one to Sac, uh, to golden state, but I don't know. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that the Sacramento Kings deliver. Uh, it's been a long over two opportunity for this team to, to be where they're at today and uh, really, really hoping this Kings team can come up on top and beat the defending champions. When I think of this series, I think of the famous quote from Hall of Fame coach Rudy Tomjanovich, never underestimate the heart of a yeah. champion. Yep. And you've got guys like Draymond Green, Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, even, you know, guys who don't play as much like Iggy and, you know, some of the, you know, Jordan Poole. I mean, these guys have all experienced winning at the highest level. The The Kings haven't even experienced the playoffs yet as a, as a group, as a group. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would say the mental edge is a big advantage, I think, for Golden State. But, you know, Ross, everything you said is true. I mean, you know, Gold, uh, Sacramento's got a lot of weapons. Yep. And uh, with that, let's get to our fourth quarter here. And for our fourth and final quarter, let's go ahead and preview Sunday's matchups. And the first one we'll have that day is the Los Angeles Lakers at Memphis Grizzlies. Bruce? You know, normally a series between a number two seed and a number seven seed doesn't really feel like an equal matchup, right? But this one is pretty close, I think. I expect Anthony Davis and LeBron James to play with a real sense of urgency because at age 38, LeBron knows that his window for chip number five is closing. Um, they were saved by Dennis Schroeder the other night against Minnesota in the play-in game. And while relying on a streaky guy like Schroeder to come up big consistently as a gamble, I think LA can reasonably expect better play out of D'Angelo Russell, who was absolutely putrid in that game against uh, the Wolves. The Grizz are missing Steven Adams, their best rebounder and resident tough guy. But they have John Morant, who should put up some big numbers against the Lakers guards. Uh, and Jaron Jackson Jr., uh, the likely defensive player of the year. But as I've said before, I expect Triple J to have his hands full guarding Davis. And with his tendency to get into foul trouble, I expect AD to go at him early and often. Um, Dylan Brooks of the Grizzlies is a tough-minded guy, but he can also be a hothead. And if his frustration boils over, uh, that will be a problem for the Grizzlies. They're going to have a problem with if, if they, for any reason, don't have his head in the game. Memphis has the home court. And if they win the series, it's going to be in six games or fewer. Because if it goes seven, even with game seven 
not far from Beale Street, I think L.A. will find a way. So if it goes seven, L.A., six or less, Memphis. All right. World B? Uh, it's fairly simple. First things first, who would have thought a series like this would have had the Lakers as the lesser of the two circus franchises of the moment between <laughs> the Grizzlies and the Lakers? So they're coming in about as under the radar as you could have a Laker team actually you know, come with – with a with a superstar, the all time leading scorer, LeBron James and AD and stuff, because of all the the garbage surrounding uh, the Grizzlies this season. Uh, can the Lakers shoot on the Grizzlies? I mean, they did. You know, for for as great a comeback as they had the other night, they only shot about forty one percent from the field and only about 32 percent, less than a third of their made a less than a third of their threes uh, against the Timberwolves. So. They're still not a good shooting team. Uh, Dylan Brooks, is, you figure, is just going to be on LeBron James a lot tougher than anybody else on Minnesota was. Uh, James looked great the other night, which is outstanding. And AD did exactly what he's supposed to do. Avoid the three-point shot. Take your game inside. When he does that, he's a dominating offensive player. He, his problems the last few seasons, too many th- from my end, too many threes. He really cut that down this year, and he became a really solid offensive player again. And so it's going to be all those two guys to really uh, carry the load. I don't think the Lakers will have enough to over to uh, carry them past a, a really good Memphis defense. And with all this circus-like atmosphere that you know surrounding them and stuff, but I will say this: just like we talked about the previous series, boy, if, you, if Memphis goes down a game. They're going to really have some, uh, you know, don't look good doing it. The pressure is going to be completely off the Lakers, and it, all yep. the focus is going to be on Memphis, and probably that's how the Lakers want it. Yeah, and an interesting uh, side note here that uh, I realized today is the fact that Grizzlies head coach Taylor Jenkins and Lakers head coach Darvin Ham were both assistants under Mike Budenholzer in Milwaukee. So there's some familiarity outside of just being Western Conference foes. Both guys should know each other quite well as far as some of their strategy or philosophies behind some things. So that will be interesting to watch kind of uh, from afar here. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about Jaron Jackson being the defensive player of the year. Well, he I know voting has closed for the regular season award, but that's going to be put to the test with both LeBron James and Anthony Davis driving in the lane, being in the lane at all times. And I'm really curious to see how he steps up for this Memphis team who is not to break a broken record still without Steven Adams. So that should be interesting. I think of on the Grizzlies, you got to get a guy like Xavier Tillman in there. And I don't mean dirty, but I, I think, I think he's got to go in there just bowling over Anthony Davis. Just take it to him. I don't even care. I would be Taylor Jenkins. I don't even care if you get three fouls in the first half. I want you to knock him around a little bit and let, let, let's make our presence felt and let him know that we're here and he's going to feel us all series long because that's the biggest thing I have with the Lakers is how healthy can Anthony Davis remain against a tough, gritty team like the grit and grind Grizzlies. So be very curious to see if they try to force the issue physically on Anthony Davis to try to get him off of his game. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I've always been a big fan of making your opponent feel you. And yep. that's something that Xavier Tillman 
can and should do. Yeah. By the way, and- uh, real quick, the previous series that we talked about, the Knicks and, uh, Knicks and Cavs, I was going to mention, do not expect to see a lot up and down in that series because they're two of the slowest-paced teams <laughs> in the league with uh, the Cavs being last and the Knicks being like bottom five. In this series, you keep your eyes focused on the game because it's going to be up and down. The Grizzlies are number two in fast breaks going, and Lakers are number four. So it's going to be up and down for these teams, which is, you know, the, from the Lakers side, that's the way I want it. But now I got a team that can do it at the other end. And I made a lot of turnovers against Minnesota. Uh, 21, I think, it w- was the total there. And it led to 19 Timberwolves points. You do that against Memphis, you're really going to pay. And, and I got a question for both of you here. One of my concerns for the Lakers is their guards defensively. I mean, you look at John Morant and Desmond Bain, two very talented scorers in this league. Who guards John Morant? Because that's a big question mark for me. And do you put Austin Reeves, who I think is probably their best on-ball guard defender, on Ja, or do you keep him on Desmond Bain? I think, you know, he's got a better chance to be successful against Bain. I mean, Ja's going to abuse anybody that the Lakers put on him. And you know, when he's playing games in L.A., he is just going to be all about putting on a show. I mean, yeah. there's going to be some very good highlights, you know, there. So, yeah, I would get, I would, I would put Reeves on, on Bain. And again, you know, see how he does. I mean, if you know, I, I think it's a little easier to guard Desmond. He's more of a spot up guy as opposed to Ja, who just like slashes everywhere. So yeah, because yeah. you know, if I think it also is going to help Reeves's offensive game to not have to chase Ja Morant, you know, as much. Whereas with Bain, he probably doesn't have to use quite as much energy. And does Shannon Sharp get a courtside seat at uh, the Crypto.com arena once again? That's another big question I have. <laughs> Causing trouble, Ross. You're a troublemaker, man. <laughs> hey, it's a valid question. Uh, but anyway, getting to the next series here, another L.A. team here. The Clippers will be visiting the Phoenix Suns. And uh, will be, what are you taking into that matchup? Uh, it's... Kawhi versus KD. I mean, when you get right down to it, um, can can Kawhi shut him down? And and if so, can he? Can Kawhi uh, do it at the offensive end as well? He's been one that we talked about before. He's been one of the best players in the league over the since he came back in December or whatever. He and he's one of the best three point shooters in the league this year, which is surprising. Uh, LA can shoot the three. They brought in a bunch of guys for that reason, and they they can do it. And so, you know, do they have enough three pointers to go up against uh, what we think? You know, geez, minute, uh, Phoenix are they ever going to lose to KD on the court? You know, you know what yeah. are they seven and zero at the end of the season? Eight no, um, eight no. Excuse me. So it's it to me it's KD versus Kawhi. If if uh, this is really they both have their pressure on because KD forced a trade and got to a team he wanted to win a championship with. And Kawhi is, if he can come up with another huge performance, win a title, whatever, with a third different team, cement himself as a top 20 player of all time, I believe, if he can pull it off. They won't play back-to-back, so he can play every game in this series. Good for, <laughs> good for the Clippers. Uh, so for me, the X factor is, 
a lot of people think it's uh, Kevin Durant. He's got a lot of pressure on him. But for me, it's KD or uh, Kawhi. You know, I got to disagree with you. I think the big matchup in this series is going to be Avika Zubats against DeAndre Ayton. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it's all <laughs> about those two guys. I mean, they they faced off in 2019 when Toronto played Golden State, and uh, and I, I believe Kawhi came out ahead in that one. Um, yeah, I mean, this feels like not a first round matchup. Uh, not a first round. It feels like this should be at least a second round matchup because of the marquee nature of all these guys that are going to be run up and down the court. I mean, besides those two, I mean, you got Chris Paul, Hall of Famer. Um, you've got Russell Westbrook, Hall of Famer at some point. Uh, Devin Booker, Paul George, possible Hall of Famers. I mean, there's guys in the Hall of Fame that aren't nearly as good as those two. So to me, this is like a real, like a, a, a marquee matchup. Of, of, of like, you know, super duper stars. But as I said before, I just don't like six, four forwards. And, and Josh Okogie's always going to be at a height disadvantage against anybody he's playing against. I don't care who. So, uh, you know, I know he's an aggressive rebounder and he can grab his share of boards. But to me, I mean, it's the little things in the playoffs, you know, how will uh, will Tyron Lue attack that? You know, because it seems like something that he'll probably try and exploit somehow or another, and that'll be a fun kind of game within the game to watch. But yeah, I would say I got the Suns in seven. But I mean, you know, it's really good series. I've got the Suns in six, and I see no world where the Suns drop game one at home. I think the energy is going to be there. I think KD is going to come out of the gates with a killer mindset. Booker alongside him. And I think the big important factors in this series are going to be the guard play of Chris Paul on the Phoenix end and Russell Westbrook on the Clippers end. How those two, more with Chris Paul, how does he hold up and, you know, can he fluster Russell? And on the other side, it's the exact opposite. Can Russell Westbrook stay composed? And can he, you know, obviously not commit those stupid turnovers in key moments down the stretch like we've seen him do in the past couple of seasons and one other side note I want to throw out there because I know he always haunts Suns fans a guy that was on the Suns when I was there Marcus Morris always has big games against his former team the Phoenix Suns so keep an eye on him to make a big shot or a big play it seems to always happen to Suns fans who appear to have some of the the toughest luck sometimes when it comes to uh playoff matchups and uh Keep an eye on Marcus Morris because he You didn't he could mention be Norman Powell? I mean, Norman's going to be huge off that bench regardless. I know he's going to come ready. Norman oh. is, is a gamer. So uh, I've got no concerns for, for him off that uh, Clippers bench. He's been, as he's I a mentioned, huge, one of He's a huge part of the series too because especially if Paul George isn't healthy, he's not, it doesn't sound like he's going to be ready to start of the series. And they need consistent offensive play. And even if he is healthy, they, they need as many weapons as possible. And, you know, besides Kawhi and Paul George, who's been more consistent on the offensive end for the Clippers than uh, Norman Powell? Yeah. And I will say this, Bruce, Norman Powell, since we are on the topic of him, he's about 6'4", so you can best expect Josh Okogie to be matched up with him. Uh, on the wings there in that series. So Norman you, can Powell's not, for, you can thank me for bringing his name up later. Yeah, uh, I got ex- I got excited <laughs> over that, but that would be a perfect matchup for a Kogi right there, just because he's an underside uh, two two three on the Clippers. But 
should be a, an interesting series to watch. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and get to our final thoughts here as we wind down tonight's show. And uh, Bruce, I'll start with you. All right. Um, I began the show talking about my experience in Toronto on Wednesday as the Bulls erased that 19-point deficit and defeated the Raptors to advance to the final play-in game against the Heat on Friday. But in closing, I'd like to discuss the team that lost. It was an ugly way for the Raptors to close out a season that has been pretty disappointing from the jump. They were never more than two games over 500 at any point in this season, and they figured finished the regular season exactly at 500 the very definition of mediocrity. Head coach Nick Nurse will almost certainly be gone, particularly after saying two weeks ago he wanted to think about his future after 10 years with the organization. If that's not a passive-aggressive way of saying, see ya, I'm not sure what is. Coaches often have a shelf life where they're still good with the X's and O's, but the players get tired of hearing their voice. You know, make no mistake. I mean, Nick Nurse is a top-shelf coach, and if he wants another job, he'll find one. Don't forget, I mean, he led the Raptors to the NBA championship just four seasons ago. And even if the Raptors and Nurse part ways, he's still Team Canada's head coach in this summer's FIBA tournament, and he has a loaded roster. That Canada roster is awesome. So he still has some good days coaching in the world of Canada, even if he loses the job in in Toronto. And we spoke to Nick Nurse uh, on Wednesday before the game, and he seemed relaxed and he spoke candidly, even as his team was facing elimination. But let's face it, the Raptors blew a game they should have won, losing by four points and missing 18 out of 36 free throws along the way. The brick fest is not the coach's fault, but he's going to feel the heat for it. Expect Raptors president Masai Ujiri to hand Nurse his pink slip soon and probably make major changes to the roster as well. And as Nurse said of his 10 years on the Raptors bench two weeks ago, it was a good run. Well said there, Bruce. And as far as Nick Nurse is concerned, no rumor is louder than the Houston Rockets being the landing spot for Nick Nurse. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. World B? On the eve of the playoffs, Kevin Durant wants you to know, again, that he's not overly (laughs) sensitive. He doesn't like that he gets criticized for tweeting too much when other players like Damian Lillard, like LeBron James, like Draymond Green, tweet a lot and don't get criticized. Again, he says it all stems back from his time in the summer of 2016 when he left Golden State, left Oklahoma City to go to Golden State. Well, duh. Jeez. <laughs> you know, it also didn't help that he tried to force his way out of Brooklyn, not once, but twice in the last seven or eight months before finally getting to go to uh, Phoenix. And by the way, Kevin Durant is probably the only person on the planet who didn't know he was going to be criticized when he went to Golden State after they won 70 games, you know, anybody else, the only people that don't know that were under a rock. (laughs) So he goes and he, for a guy who tries to spend a lot of time, you know, sends a lot of time on social media being criticized and complaining about criticized and says it doesn't bother him when he gets criticized on social media or whatever, he sure does like to bring it up a lot. Yeah, and uh, I, I found it very uh, interesting, the fact that he said uh, some nice things about Charles Barkley, but said that he, he's not very interested in a sit-down, which would be almost pay-per-view TV at this point to have those two <laughs> sit down and clash it out. But uh, good point made by you there, World B. As for my final thought, I want to bring recognition to the 10 NBA players this season. And uh, I want to bring recognition to 10 NBA players this season. 
And that is Harrison Barnes, Tari Eason, Isaiah Hartenstein, Kevon Looney, KJ Martin, Jordan Poole, Nikola Vucevic, Derek White, Patrick Williams, and Mikael Bridges. Since I mentioned Brooklyn Bridges, you probably already have a hunch what they all have in common. They were the 10 players to play in all 82 games this season, with Bridges amazingly actually playing in 83 of them. Getting to watch the play-in tournament has been refreshing and oddly brings a new level of excitement as we're finally able to enjoy more consistency from both the, the best teams and the best players. It's truly been a tough year to evaluate just how good teams are with just how much load management played a factor with lineups, rotations, and even role changes. But it's now playoff time, and of course injuries will always be an unfortunate part of any sport, but it's full go time, and we're truly about to witness what each team and player are really made of, as both teams and the respective players will be laying it all out on the line. So buckle up, NBA fans. We're in for a fun ride. And with that, that will do it for this edition of the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back with you on Tuesday after an action-packed playoff weekend to be sure you're up to date in 48 on all things around the association. Take care, everybody.